but to understand that we need to give children plenty of opportunity to do what they can do and get better at that. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Pudua, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. As we take a break from recording, we have chosen to replace several of our greatest hits for you to enjoy. We hope that you are able to gain insight for your educational journey. So today, Andrew, our topic is on burnout. And part of the reason I thought this would be of interest to our listeners is January typically is a month where people just kind of fall into the doldrums, right? They just... It's not quite as bad as late March. What happens late March? Then you're getting really close to the end of the school year. Oh, that's true. But actually, January 24th is the saddest day of the year, according to some experts. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's National Burnout Day. Well, maybe it's related to that. And maybe (laughs) burnout, it's one of the reasons people are burned out. Well, it's ironic because it's the middle of winter. (laughs) Right. Unless you're in Australia. (laughs) True, true. So to our folks from the land down under, we hope you're enjoying your summer. For those of us who are in the Northern Hemisphere, it is a sad day. SAD stands for Seasonal Affective Disorder. And I just thought it would be a good time to talk with our listeners and have you share some of your strategies on motivation. It was actually 100 episodes ago that we talked about motivation. Hmm. And we can link to that podcast, although it was one of our first ones. So <laughs> That's where we did the four forms of relevancy, the three laws of motivation, and the two secret weapons, if I recall. Yes. And so can we just talk about the three laws of motivation today? So you remember the first law, of course. Yes. Children like to do what they can do. Yes. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Don't we like to do what we're good at? Yes. You're very good at writing. Uh, (laughs) That's a strategic ploy for you to get me to write something. Exactly. No, we find that whatever we have a natural tendency to be good at, we like those things. So if you're good at basketball, you enjoy playing basketball. If you're good at games, you enjoy playing games. If you're good at cooking, you enjoy cooking. So this is a natural human condition that we like to do what we can do, and generally we do those things well. So it's very important to understand that when we're in this world of education, you know, a good chunk of our time is trying to move kids forward. We Mm got to work through the curriculum. We got to make progress. We got to get through those nine units and the style technique. Yes, we do. But to understand that we need to give children plenty of opportunity to do what they can do and get better at that. That's one of the things Dr. Suzuki discovered, and we've talked a little bit about talent education, Suzuki method in the past, is that when children play the pieces that they can play well, they tend to enjoy that part of the practice of the playing in a group ensemble or whatever. So that's the first kind of law of motivation. Children like to do what they can do. Great. This leads us into, of course, the next law, or you might even call it a corollary, because they're so closely related, you can't really think about them separately. But the second law is that children want to do what they 
think they can do. Oh, okay. Right? Right. So if you think you can do something and be successful, you want to do that for the Mm -hmm. most part. Mm -hmm. There may be a few exceptions, but if you think you could make a cake that's going to be good, Mm -hmm. you'd like to try that, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. If you think that you could draw a picture, Mm -hmm. then you'd want to draw a picture. If you think you could write a story, you'd want to write a story. So my son, I always use this example, he wanted to jump off the roof when he was 10 years old. (laughs) Why? He thought he could. Fortunately, you lived in a one-story house at the time, right? It was a one-story house, (laughs) but nevertheless, the roof was a little higher than I think his mother would have been comfortable (laughs) with, but he wanted to do it. Why? because he thought he could, you see? So then we go to the third law or or the next corollary, and that is this. Children hate and will refuse to do that which they believe they cannot do or cannot do well or cannot do well enough to satisfy the person who needs to be satisfied, Mm -hmm. right? So I, for example, flat out refuse ever again under any circumstances to ever get on a snowboard. Yes. Why? Why am I so opposed to getting on a snowboard? Because the last time I tried, which quite honestly was about 17 years ago, Hmm. was so horrible, so miserable, so painful, so excruciatingly frustrating that it was a very, very, very very bad experience. I wonder how many snowboard instructors are listening to this right now who are thinking, I could teach you. Yes. You could love yes. this. In fact, my children thought they could convert me. Mm-hmm. They would say stupid things like, come on, Dad. It's fun. If you just practice a little, you'll get the hang of it, and it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. But I did not believe them. Consequently, I never went snowboarding again, <laughs> and nor do I intend to. Mm-hmm. And I can't even think of how big a number it might take someone to bribe me to get on a snowboard once again. But it would have to be a fairly significant chunk of change. What about snow skis? Would you do snow skis? No, no skis, (laughs) no boards. In fact, I'd just like to look at the snow personally. (laughs) But but you see, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm more resilient, perhaps, than most children. Children are from infancy wired to stand up and fall down and stand back up again, try something, fail, and try it again. But gradually, as we get older, we develop this, I would say, less of a tolerance for failure, Mm -hmm. right? And when we get into the area of academics and schoolwork and motivation in that way, then we're often looking at the problem of failure is a self-perception or it's self-imposed or it could also be something that's perceived as having failed someone else. Hmm, Right. So if you're my mom and I'm doing math problems and I get, you know, seven out of ten of these math problems wrong, you're going to be disappointed, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're going to be disappointed, I'll be disappointed and I will feel as though I have failed you. Right. So that's a tricky thing because, you know, seven out of ten wrong, there's only one possible way to flip that around. And you got three out of ten right. Right. (laughs) That's great. Mm -hmm. I bet we could do some more problems like this and you might get more than three. And wouldn't that be good? And so how to flip from there's a, a dissatisfaction with the result to a satisfaction with the result That's part of that 
you know, art of teaching and coaching, if you will. When I think of this topic of burnout, and, you know, we talked about motivating a child, I think of the teacher having to work a little harder maybe this time of year to motivate a child and a child having to work a little higher, harder to stay motivated. How does a teacher stay motivated? Well, I think that anyone who survives more than a few years of teaching, whether that's in a classroom or in a tutorial situation or as a homeschool parent, they have learned a bit about their own psychology. They've learned a little bit about how to deal with down days. Part of teaching, I will confess, as a lifelong practitioner of this, is acting. Yes, exactly. You know, you, and you know, too. You, sometimes you just fake it till you make mm-hmm. it, if that's the expression. You're not feeling tremendously energetic. You kind of wish this, too, would pass, only sooner. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're tired, but you have to walk in and realize that the enthusiasm is going to be the key to having the successful experience. Part of that, of course, is keeping yourself, you know, full of ideas. Yes. Keeping your, yourself. Uh, DeMille's seventh key of great teaching is you, not them. Mm-hmm. So if you focus on yourself, then there's an overflow from the soul of the teacher to the soul of the students. If, you, if you're feeling drained, then you'll come across looking drained, and your kids will immediately know you're drained, and they will they will immediately feel drained. There will mm-hmm. be this vicarious experience that happens. Whereas if you come in and say, hey, guys, listen to this thing I just read, or hey, I just learned a new joke. That's a good one. Yes. In a pinch, find a joke mm-hmm. <laughs> and have some modicum of, of interest and excitement. Then that sets the tone. That sets the tone. This is, in a way, easier to do with other people's children, I will admit, because they're not with you 24-7. So they're not going to read you quite the same. The acting's easier. You're trying to do that with your own kids. They're like, yeah, mom, sure. <laughs> you know, we know you're exhausted and miserable, and so are we. But you're just pretending we're not. How do you get past that? Right. So with that, sometimes it's just take a break. And by break, I don't mean take a vacation. I mean shift to something different. So if you're up against the wall with math, it's frustrating everyone. Try to shift over and do some different math for a while. If you're, you know, frustrated with the, the next Latin lesson or whatever, try to go back and find something different. Create a game. If you're in this writing sequence and you're just kind of getting burned out on the checklist, stop and do an off-checklist assignment. Do some poetry. Do something that is different. One of the things that we notice, and this is true, of course, for everyone, even in the workplace and in our adult life is that variety helps us get through tedium. Yep. Even when you're washing the dishes, if it's just the same old dishes, you know, <laughs> but if it's like this interesting pot that you haven't had to wash for a few days. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> sorry. I've just been washing a lot of dishes recently, <laughs> but we, we like that. We like the variety. So how to bring that into the teaching experience. I think that's one of the super keys to overcome the burnout, both personally and in in a group. So, you know, coming with something new, and maybe that new thing is a shift from what has been difficult or coming up against a wall to something that's different and maybe a little easier. That way you make the shift. 
You always have to make the shift backwards from the third law situation, which is children hate and will refuse to do that which they do not believe they can do, to the second or first law, which is children want to do what they can do or like they will like to do what they think they can do. So how do you shift back? That's always the question you want to be asking. And maybe it involves, like I said, something completely different where they don't have any momentum of failure. It's the momentum of failure or perceived failure that really kills people. Exactly right. So how do you put the brakes on and turn it around? Well, there is no one categorical answer for every different situation. Sure. But the main thing would be stop, breathe, Mm -hmm. and ask yourself a few questions. Didn't we just talk about thinking a while ago? We did. Which is, you know, what is making this child feel unsuccessful? Or if it's a personal thing, what is making me feel unsuccessful? Do I not have enough help? Is there not enough information? Do I not have enough experience at this level before going to the next level? Same thing with the child. Do they have enough help? Are they the type of child who's Mm -hmm. always asking for help and therefore as a teacher or parent I'm resistant to helping them too much? And as you know, the four deadly errors, withholding help. Right. So as I like to say, you can't actually help a child too much because they'll tell you when they don't need help. So a child could be frustrated because their teacher is not giving them the help that they need, or the teacher is frustrated because the child continues to ask for help when the teacher doesn't believe that they need it. Exactly. And you can have the the opposite situation going on. Not only can you have a child who asks for help and you don't think they really need it, so you tend to withhold it. You can have children who are who won't ask for help when they do need it mm. and stew in their frustration mm. because they would look at asking for help as a, a form of weakness or, or failure of some sort. And unfortunately, if you have more than one child in your family or group or class, uh, you're going to have kids all up and down the spectrum. Sure. There. You know, I had seven children and uh, a couple of them responded quite well to challenges. I'll bet you can't do this. I sure can. I'll prove you wrong, Dad. And that was motivating. I had another child. I tried the same approach, and it decimated the situation. It was like, you don't think I can do it? Well, I guess then I can't. So I had to adjust myself to give more help to build success when needed and then create the challenge so the child would rise up. And you can't just make a categorical method there. It's it's really individual coaching, unfortunately. Right, right. So when you were talking about giving more help, I was thinking about stress. And have I ever shared with you my stress analogy and the rubber band? I don't think you have. Okay, well, so here's my little lesson to you, Andrew. So I want you to pr- imagine that you're holding a rubber band. Yes. Okay, so I want to see you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so now... Turn your rubber band up like this, this way. This, this is audio, up. not video. I know, but everybody can visualize this. All so right. our, our rubber band is vertical now. And now pull it up, and it's really tight, and it's just going to break. That's January. So how do we release the stress in January? We either get more help or lower expectations. 
and mm. then we have less stress. Okay. Or you could just cut the rubber band. <laughs> well, that we don't want to cut the rubber band. <laughs> so perhaps even lowering expectations. Like you said, take a break, get more help. That can be some of the ways that we can help our families. Yeah, you know, in, in the case of a class or a homeschool situation, either one, when you hit a point of, I don't believe I can do this, mm-hmm. oftentimes more explanation is not the form of help yes, that people so need. Yes, that's so true. Right? Yes. So if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times, this is how you do this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how you should do it. Okay, so how do you back up? Well, you have to do it together, mm-hmm. right? And we always say children learn more by experience than by information. Right. And yet we tend to think the method of teaching is I explain this to you and then you go try and do it and then I will correct you when you don't do it the way I explained it. Well, that can very quickly be frustrating and especially if you've been at it a couple months and of course in January you've often had two or three weeks of of less practice at whatever you're trying to learn. Right. And so you tend to forget little things, but oh no, we're in the second half of the school year. We're not halfway through the the book or the program or the curriculum. We need to speed up, right? Mm. So that's another error that can happen. So maybe it's just, hey, let's write this one together and get a whiteboard and you dictate a sentence to me and I'll throw in a couple good ideas and you can copy what I write on the whiteboard and we'll just do this entire writing assignment together. Now, could you do that for a nine-year-old? Well, absolutely. Could you do that for a 13-year-old? Absolutely. What about a 16-year-old? I think if the circumstance warranted it, yeah, certainly. Great. You know, if a 16-year-old is saying, I can't do this, I don't know how to do this, well, more explanation will not solve the problem, right? What they need to do is get on the experiential side of actually doing it. And maybe that means you're going to have to, as the parent or teacher, let go of your attachment to their doing it independently, even though they're 16 years old, even though they should be able to do it. <laughs> right. Right? Right. But they're still only 16. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier today, when we were preparing to have this conversation, you mentioned that there were actually two types of procrastination. (laughs) Did I? Yes. That sounds like a rationalization. (laughs) And I thought that would be of interest to our listeners to hear what could compel someone to procrastinate. Well, I think all of us, especially as adults, have had the experience of trying to do something and not feeling ready. Mm. Now, sometimes the circumstances dictate that it must be done. Right. You've got a deadline. Right now. Yep. You have waited until the last minute. (laughs) But there's also the value in, I don't know what we call it, you know, percolating, or I guess steeping might be a better analogy, because you have some problem to solve. You have, in my case, some article to write. I know the information in my mind is there to write this article. I don't have to go do much in the way of research. Maybe I'll look up a couple names just to be sure I fact check a little bit. But it's all there. But it's not not rich enough yet. So the teabag dips into the water of my mind, and the goal then seeps out and then 
at a certain point, there's a density, <laughs> there's sufficient uh, strength of tea to produce the product, to pour into the cup, so to speak. But if you, if you push it prematurely, then maybe it won't be as good at the end. So that's why I said this morning in our little meeting where everybody says what they're going to do today, I said, I'm going to continue to procrastinate <laughs> about writing the article because it's percolating, it's steeping, it's gelling, it's forming, and there will reach a point where I feel like, aha, this is now ready to flow from my brain through my fingers to the pixels and ultimately to your desk. <laughs> I look forward to that, and I'm sure all of our listeners look forward to reading that. And if and when that article appears, which I fully expect it to in the next <laughs> week or so, <laughs> we'll be sure and, and share it with our listeners. I'm looking forward to that. And so this percolating, this, this seeping, isn't because it's January. It's not a seasonal affective disorder syndrome type thing. It's just you wanted to make it the very best for our listeners. We can say that. Yes. <laughs> well, on that note, we had better get back to work. So we shall. Thanks so much for joining us for one of our favorite episodes. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or you can visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. New recordings will begin airing in January of 2020. Until then, we hope you'll join us each week as we revisit our greatest hits. <laughs>